Radio Mano Papachango. Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking, the world's favorite handcrafted, homebrewed, small batch artisanal, artisanal, not artisanal, the fuck am I saying? Artisanal. See, that's what happens when you do something artisanally. You have small errors. Any flaws you detect in this podcast are part of the manufacturing process and add to the charm of the podcast. Organic, free-range, cage-free podcasting coming to you from Topanga, California, where it's been raining like a motherfucker for the last uh, 24 hours. They said it's the biggest storm of the last six or seven years that's just come through. Uh, So far, we haven't been cut off from the rest of the world the way we were a few weeks ago when the, the last storm came through. Anyway, uh, this uh, episode is with Michael Shermer, famous author, skeptic, editor of Skeptic Magazine, uh, super interesting guy, very smart. Uh, he hangs with people like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins, and uh, as I learned today, he's, he's become friendly with uh, Deepak Chopra, interestingly, sort of... Um, uh, unusual, you know, cat and dog kind of friendship, but I'm in favor of those. That's great. So anyway, Michael Shermer is a very cool guy. He came up to Topanga. We recorded here in my little hovel yesterday or the day before. I think it was the day before. Yeah, yesterday was Armageddon here, uh, biblical shitstorm. But the day before that, Michael came in before the storm hit and we uh, we hung out here. So this one's fresh out of the oven. Um I've got some others coming soon, coming to you next week or and the week after and the week after that that are already in the can that are wonderful. So stay tuned for those. Welcome to new listeners. I don't know what the hell's going on, but the number of downloads for this podcast have doubled in the last uh two months, I guess, three months. I don't know. It's just sort of exponentially exploding. I don't understand why it all started in October, which is before, you know, before I had been on Rogan or or done any sort of uh, public stuff here in LA. I was still sort of just getting settled in. Um, so I don't know what's going on. But for those of you who are new to the podcast, welcome to you. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you tell your friends, those of you who are old timers, How's it going? Uh, Thanks for telling your friends about it, because clearly it's word of mouth. We're not advertising or anything. And um, I mean, I have done some public stuff recently. I was on Rogan's show uh, last week, I guess it was the week before that. I think it was the week before that. Anyway, episode 913. If you're uh, an occasional Rogan fan, you can check that out. If you want to see me in action, it's up on YouTube and Vimeo, and he he puts his stuff up everywhere. He's a multimedia mogul. Um, I also did a, a live show with the people at Cracked dot com, uh, which they released on Valentine's Day. So that's up. You can just go to Cracked dot com and see that. Um, yeah, so cool stuff is happening. Every time I'm in LA, interesting things happen. I get interest. I get invited to. Uh, 
you know, do stuff like the crack.com thing and go over to Joe's and the Rogan thing is always so weird though. Cause you know, I, if you, I've been on Rogan's podcast, I don't know, a dozen, 15, 20 times. I, I don't even know how much. Um, but the first episode was kind of awkward because, um, the way it happened was Duncan Trussell wrote me an email when he read Sex at Dawn. This is like 2011, something like that, 2012. I was living in Spain. Uh, I came to LA pretty regularly. I've got family here. And so anyway, Duncan sent me an email. Hey, I really, hey, I really liked your book, man. Uh, and he invited me to be on his podcast. And I didn't even know what a podcast was at the time. So uh, I looked it up and it said something about it being, you know, a radio show, essentially. And I was like, all right, I'll do a radio show. I've been doing all these call-in interviews. I was doing a lot of media for Sex at Dawn. Um, it sort of hit big and became a, um, you know, I was invited to do a lot of interviews and stuff. So anyway, I agreed to, you know, next time I'm in L.A., I'd look him up. So I was in L.A. a month or two later. I got in touch, and um, he was like, yeah, come over to my place. We'll do this, man. Okay, so I went over to his place, and uh, I thought it was a studio. I didn't know, whatever. We just sat in his living room. He had a couple of mics on a table. You know, he offered me some weed and some ketamine. I don't know what the fuck he had. But he was like, you want to get high? You want this? You want that? Oh, all right. Well, no. Nah. So we did this, the podcast, and it was just a really nice conversation. It was great. And I was like, fuck, this is the podcasting is cool. Uh, and then we went out for a beer. And he said to me, uh, you should do my friend Joe's podcast. And I was like, yeah. He's like, Joe, Joe, Joe Rogan, Joe, Joe would love you. And I was like, okay, you got a friend named Joe Rogan. I, I'd never heard of Joe Rogan. I live in Spain. What do I know? I've been like, you know, in Asia and Africa, I've been all traveling around the world. I don't know Fear Factor. I've never seen the radio show, whatever it was, the radio something radio that he was on. I mean, I, I, I don't, I didn't watch MFA, you know, M or MMA or whatever. <laughs> MFA, <laughs> master of fine arts. That'd be a great, get Rogan in there. And the short story uh, competition in the octagon. Uh, anyway, I'm rambling. Uh, so I didn't know who Joe Rogan was, right? So then I get back to Spain after doing this podcast. And by the way, this, this was when Duncan said to me, you should do a podcast, man. I mean, you, you meet all these cool people and you, you know, you like to talk and, and I was like, yeah, last fucking thing I need in my life is, you know, a podcast, the responsibility and all this technology and recording and microphones. I don't know anything about all that. Um, but he said he had a friend who would uh, do the technology for me and just like, you know, give me a list of gear I need. And anyway, so that's how I got into podcasting initially through Duncan. But the story I'm trying to tell, I interrupt myself. I'm like, it's hard for me to talk even when I'm alone in a room. I keep getting interrupted. So the story I'm telling you is uh, this Joe Rogan thing. So I get back to Spain and I'm talking to my buddy Voodoo, tattoo artist Voodoo, and He's like, yeah, how was L.A., man? I was like, yeah, well, I don't know. And, and I did this podcast. You, you know about podcasts? And he's like, oh, yeah, podcasts are cool, man. Uh, you should do Joe Rogan's podcast. And I'm like, how the fuck do you know Duncan's friend Joe Rogan? And he's like, no, dude, he's famous. He's, he, like, he does this martial arts shit, and he's a stand-up, and he's like... I was like, oh, he's famous? Oh, okay, I didn't know he was famous. I thought it was just Duncan's next-door neighbor or something. I don't know. Anyway, so then a few months later, I get to L.A. and Duncan by now has talked to Joe about me and 
Joe invites me on the podcast. And by now I know Joe's this big deal, right? And Joe's audience is, at that point, his audience was a few hundred thousand uh, per, per episode. Now, of course, it's exploded into the millions. But at that point, you know, even at that point, two, three, four hundred thousand people, that's a big ass audience. That's way more than talking to, you know, some journalist at Newsweek or FM radio that I was doing or, you know, whatever. Um, So at the time I went in to do this podcast, it was the biggest audience that I'd ever spoken to by far. Um, So I go in. Cassie was with me. Cassie came. And um, I think that might have made Joe a little uncomfortable that I showed up with someone, uh, you know, because his studio is kind of a sacred space and he doesn't like surprises and, you know, whatever. I mean, it wasn't a big deal, but I could sense that it was like, oh, it's not just you. It's you. And oh, who are you? Oh, you're the wife. Oh, but, you know, like maybe he thought that we thought we were both being interviewed. I don't know. There was some awkwardness there, but she went and sat off on the side and. So I sit down and I, you know, and I start telling Joe this story about how, you know, this, the point of the story is that I'm totally out of touch, that I'm an idiot, as most good stories are self-deprecating, right? Nobody wants to hear you tell a story about how cool you are. So the story was that I'm an idiot. But what happened was that I told the part about how I didn't know who you were and my buddy Voodoo and... No, I just told the part about how I didn't know who you were. I thought you were just like Duncan's friend, Joe. And then Joe looks at me and he says, so what'd you do? Google me? And I was like, "Uh, well, no, not exactly. What happened was I got to Spain. I was talking to my buddy Voodoo. And then at this point, uh, young Jamie breaks in and says, okay, we got a sound check and you got to do these ads and stuff. And so he interrupts the story at the point where all I've conveyed to Joe is that I I didn't know who you were. Which I think Joe took is like, who the fuck is this dude who comes to my studio and immediately tries to like diminish me, <laughs> you know, because Joe, Joe's a fighter. He's very aware of like who's, you know, who's on top and who's got control and who's in the you know dominant position and whatever. And I think he took it as like me coming in like, oh, I'm a big shot fucking New York Times bestselling author. I don't know who the fuck you are. That was, you know, that was the opposite of what I was trying. That was the opposite of the story. But so, so I'm interrupted at that point. And I know that's the message that I've conveyed. And and I was like, that's not what I want to convey. And meanwhile, Joe rolls up a joint and he hits it and he passes it to, um, I guess Red Band was still there. And Red Band hits it and then Jamie and then, uh, and then they passed it to me and I'm like, uh, I really don't want to get high right now. I'm thinking in my head, I don't want to get high. Like I've already fucked up and we haven't even started this thing yet. I don't want to be high. Uh, and, but, and I haven't smoked in months, but if I don't hit this joint, I'm going to look like even bigger asshole than I already do. So then I hit the joint, pass it on to Joe and within about 30 seconds, I'm like so stoned. I'm holding on to the bottom of the chair so I won't fall off. I'm like on the back of a motorcycle or something. I'm just like, oh, shit. Meanwhile, Joe finishes the ads and then we start talking. And he says, uh, so 
and you can go listen to this episode. I hope it's more or less as I remember it. But he says something about like, you must get some weird reactions from people. Your book's really sort of controversial. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. In fact, I was like on a plane recently. I met this guy. And, and again, it's one of these, I didn't know he was famous stories, but it was this guy. And, um, you know, we, we sort of hit it off and talked about the book a lot. And he wanted to, he was like excited about, you know, when he got back to LA, he was going to have me come in and we were going to talk about making a movie together or, you know, and anyway, it was one of these, like we spent like six or seven hours. It was a flight to, uh, to London from LA and we just talked and talked and he, and I gave him my last, um, my last copy, my last of the pre-publication copies. And he was going to get back to me, but I never heard from the guy. And then uh, my friend Stanley Krippner was going to uh, a conference where this guy, this TV star that I finally figured out was a TV star, uh, was going to be. And I said to Stanley, hey, if you if you run into this guy, ask him what the hell happened. I never heard from him. And so Stanley did. He saw the guy there and he went over and he introduced himself and he said, hey, the guy was there with his wife. And he said, um, you uh, you sat next to my friend Chris on a plane and, you know, talked a lot and blah, blah, blah. And you know, that book and and the guy sort of looked at the ground and his wife said, sex at dawn. I threw that book in the garbage. Nobody speaks to my husband about sex except me. So that's the story I told Joe about how the book gets weird reactions. Seemed like a good story to tell. So then Joe says, who was the guy? And I'm like, nah, well, it's some guy. He, he's f- sort of famous. I mean, he was in whatever. But I, I don't want to say his name. And the Joe's like, come on. Who's the guy? I was like, nah, Joe. I, come on. Come on. Who's the guy? Come on. And I, I say, Ricky Schroeder. And Joe then says, oh, Rick Schroeder's a good friend of mine. He and his wife went out to dinner last week. You, you don't know that's what really happened. This is all like secondhand information. Totally flips me. Totally flips me over. I'm on my back. <sighs> Fuck. So that's how it started with Joe. At the end of that. And then I said, so then I'm like, I say, Fuck, Joe, listen, man, I shouldn't have said his name. I feel like an asshole now. I mean, I, yeah, you're right. I wasn't there. I don't know what happened can we just stop this and start over? And Joe says, it's live, bitch. (laughs) Yeah. So that's how my relationship with Joe Rogan started. Not very well. And and then from my perspective, not very well. But then uh, when we left, I said to Cassie, I'm high. Was that? As bad as I thought, because it went for two and a half hours or something. And she said, that is the worst public appearance you've ever, you've ever been on, you've ever participated in. I was like, oh shit. That's what I thought. That's kind of how it felt. But, you know, I guess I didn't understand Rogan's audience. I didn't understand Rogan. uh, And I didn't understand that contention and spontaneousness and authenticity and all those things are really what it's about. They're not looking for studied, uh, sort of prepackaged statements. They're looking for a conversation. And that was a conversation which included, you know, embarrassment and fuck up on my part. 
Um, but anyway, that that's how it started. Joe and I have been friends. He invited me back, and we got to be buddies. And I don't even remember what the hell the point of this story is. I guess just that it's strange uh, to do his show because, as I said to him in the studio last week, you know, when he invites me over, it's like, oh, this is my chance to go hang out and catch up with my buddy Joe because he's so busy. I mean, the dude's living five lives simultaneously somehow. Stand-up comic, MFA commentator, uh, incredibly popular and prolific podcaster, you know, husband, father, hunter, you know, he cooks his own food, he grows food, he's, you know, he's like, he's living 20 lives. Uh, so he's busy. So, you know, m- maybe 85, 90% of the time I've spent with Joe, it's been with microphones on. And one of the only times we've actually hung out, we've hung out after shows where, uh, I've, you know, gone backstage and then we've gone out for dinner and stuff. But other than that, we went one time, Joe Duncan and I went to a firing range and shot guns. That was kind of fun. Um, but most of the time it's, it's doing a podcast um, which is kind of strange because it's like your friendship is is weirdly public. It's uh, I don't know. I hope you're not. I hope the sound of the dishwasher in the background isn't bothering you too much. Uh, I start. I can't stop it in the middle of a cycle. I tried. I tried, and I've got stuff happening, so I need to do this. Okay, Michael Shermer. I really hope you enjoy this podcast. I don't know what the hell's going on in the world right now. Uh, Trump gave up. Uh, his first press conference last week, and it was a bizarre, a bizarre situation. I look in his eyes and I see, I tweeted something about this. He's, to me, Donald Trump is the Michael Jackson of politics, except without talent. He's, he's distorted. He's twisted and he looks scared. He looks like he knows he's a fraud. I think Michael Jackson felt he was a fraud, which was, you know, explained the skin stuff and the nose stuff and the, you know, being unable to, to, um, you know, have social relationships with adults. I don't think he was necessarily a pedophile. I think he was just so vulnerable that only children felt safe to him. Um, and I think Trump is terrified I look in that guy's eyes and I watch that press conference. I see a man desperately trying to make people like him. Um, But he doesn't know how to do it because he's never had honest feedback. You know, he's like anyone else who lives in in a world that's distorted by too much money, too much power, too much fame, too much beauty. They don't get honest feedback, and so they they become twisted. I, I, as longtime listeners know, I spent a lot of time living with fashion models and observing the way they think and the way they experience the world. And and the thing is, especially the women who get into it at a very young age, they live in this distorted world where they're getting constant attention, And yet, on a deeper level, they know that they don't deserve that attention. They know they're not all that. They know that whatever it is that people are clamoring for is just, they were just born that way. They just happen to be really tall, pretty 14-year-olds. It doesn't, who cares? You know, it's not like they discovered the fucking cure for polio or something. They're just, 
And it's the same thing with power. It's the same thing with money. It's the same thing with fame in, in most cases. You didn't do anything. You're just fucking famous because your dad did this or you're, you know, you were in a fucking movie. I mean, I'm an award-winning actor. I know it doesn't take that much. Best non-sex performance, baby. AVN Award 2016. Look it up. It's true. Uh yeah, so that's that's how I felt. I felt that uh, Trump was terrified. He's desperate for approval. He doesn't know what he's doing, and he knows it's all a very tenuous situation. I honestly, and I, I, I say this in all seriousness, if I were close to him, and you know, I don't think anyone's really close to him, but if I were, I would be um, concerned with suicide or self-destructive behavior because I think the guy's gonna he's gonna freak out I just hope he doesn't take the rest of the world with him on that cheery note I'm gonna wrap this up uh thank you for listening thank you for telling your friends those of you who have the financial wherewithal to support the podcast please do either through patreon.com you can just go on patreon.com search Christopher Ryan or search tangentially speaking and you'll see my little account there and you can click a few buttons and pledge a buck or five bucks or ten bucks or whatever however many bucks you want to pledge per month and that'll support the podcast financially the other way to do it is through amazon.com my affiliate link is at my page that chris ryan.com or tangentially speaking.com click on that amazon sucker in the right, right margin and then uh bookmark it and then whenever you buy something at amazon somewhere between four and eight percent of the purchase price gets kicked over to the podcast at no additional cost to you it just comes it's just amazon money i don't know how they can afford it or what their business model is but i appreciate it and it doesn't cost you anything extra so how about that those of you who don't have credit cards, don't have Amazon accounts, don't have any fucking money, I feel ya. Don't worry about it. Just tell your friends or, or just listen and enjoy it. Don't make no never mind. Uh, all right. So Michael Shermer, really cool guy. Uh, there are links to some of the stuff we talk about. And as always, there will be a link to the music. I'm going to play you a tune, which is called Devil's Detail. And it's by someone who is virtually unknown, uh, Latif, I think it is, Latif, I'm, I'm, yeah, there it is, Z-Trip and Latif. The tune is called Devil's Detail, and it's from the album Ahead of the Curve. Hope you enjoy it, take it easy, and I'll catch you next time. Do your surroundings define you, or are you your own man? Demons and shades defy you, will they run your affairs? You can play your masquerade, but your rules will be laid bare. You can lie to yourself if that's what you choose, but the devil's in the details. Bring it back. Digging room where's the space that they've packed. Digging their own chains with bones from their back. Locking themselves behind bars that they've stacked like coffins. Only like they get is through slats. They can't do never get out of that trap. Ideas and stereotypes got them snacked. Won't be long now till they get bagged and don't tag them back to their cemetery patches. Always avoid their leashes attached. The hand that feeds them will never get attacked. No matter how many times they get smacked, they can't find the reason within the fight back. Demons and shades to find you. Will they run your affairs?
talking about uh yeah milo milo's been on rogan's show i i haven't heard that episode i didn't hear that one he was on uh dave rubin's show a couple times very thoughtful uh conversations the guy you know you 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 know just read about him in the news you think he's spitting fire and that he's a a crazy man yeah but he doesn't come off like that at all in in a like a podcast conversation he's totally reasonable have you met her i've never met him no Uh, no yeah no i've never met him yeah uh i you know i'm curious too just to see how much of it is shtick yeah you know because i've been tweeting for a year now to liberals if you want to shut this guy down if you really want to hurt him uh, on these college campus talks uh just don't go yeah you know because i do a lot of public talks at colleges i have a lecture agency that books me maybe a dozen talks a, a year and there's nothing worse than having a half empty room right and you're on campus no one knows you're there you bet, you'd care. rather have people yelling and screaming. yeah absolutely yeah. this is what he wants he'd be heartbroken if yeah. you know, he walked into a half empty <laughs> hall and no one even knew he was there it'd be like that's a failure you know a success yeah. is where they're barricading the doors <laughs> right what's that oscar wilde line the only thing worse than being talked about is not being that's talked right. about yeah absolutely yeah um, so, you know, I do wonder to what extent that more protests he gets, the more he ramps up the rhetoric just to poke the hornet's nest to see what happens, as opposed yeah. to, does he really believe, you know, that fat people should be, uh, you know, kicked out of America or whatever, whatever crazy thing he says? Yeah. Uh, you know, or is that just part of the, uh, you know, I'm just just saying stuff to, to, to irk people? It does seem that that being famous is its own reward these days. I mean, the Kardashians are the sort of prime example, but, you know, you see it in in politics and everything. It's control the news cycle, get your name out there. You know, it's it's become an end in itself. When he just signed a big book deal, uh, Milo, we're talking about with my publisher, Simon and Schuster, right? Um, 
250,000 advance. I mean, it's not super huge. Yeah. Uh, did I just see Obama's getting like a $20 million advance? For his, his <laughs> he, he's got a platform. Well, <laughs> yeah. Now that's a platform. Yeah, that's yeah. a platform. Uh, but still, I mean, he'll, he'll, he'll earn out 250,000 with the kind he's already, sure. yesterday I checked, he's number 40 on Amazon and the book's not out till June. Mm. So, and this is all driven by the band in Boston effect. It's just yeah. because they're protesting and people want to see, well, what's it, you know, what's this guy about? I'm going to get his book. And no one seems to know what's in the book. Maybe he doesn't even know yet. He hasn't written it yet. <laughs> he he just signed the contract two yeah, weeks ago. Right. So, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, but, um, you know, so, you know, fame, publicity, you know, I don't, I don't know what it's really worth in terms of, you know, book sales or yeah. talk fees or whatever, how, whatever metric you're using to, to value something like that. How do you monetize it? I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be so well known that you're recognized if you you know you go out to a restaurant or you're in the starbucks or whatever but some people like that you don't want a free coffee come on (laughs) come on i like groupies i like daniel borston's definition of a celebrity as somebody who's well known for their well-knownness yeah famous for being famous right what did he do well i don't well he's you know he's famous for what for being famous (laughs) do you ever see that i don't remember the guy's name but a guy i think he's a performance artist or something he hired two big muscular black guys to walk beside him through Times Square oh. and then another guy with a camera in front to sort of like film him. Right. And uh, so people gathered around, right? right? Because right. they created right. this aura of fame. Right. And then he had people interviewing the people who were standing around asking, you know, are you familiar with, you know, Michael Johnson's work? And like people were like, oh, yeah, he's, I've been following him my whole, his whole career. Right, right. And then one guy was like, yeah, I like the earlier stuff better than the later stuff. <laughs> it's like a Jay Leno uh, street, uh, jaywalking thing. Yeah, or, uh, exactly. Or Waters World. Uh, yeah. Of course, some of that stuff probably gets edited. You know, you pick the dumbest. Of course, comments. of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so that's, you know, it's like you want to stand on a street corner, a social psych experiment or a can of camera. You just get a group of people, just two or three people staring at the top of a building. And right. And, Suddenly know. everyone's yeah. looking. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so how you're best known as a, a skeptic, right? That's your yeah, thing. That's right. You are yeah. the skeptic. Yeah. You and I, did, I was thinking, I know you and I have met, I think it was in Portugal. Was it at the, like in 99 or 2000? There was some conference. I was thinking that too. I, I thought, was it the um, City of Ideas um, oh, in, in Puebla, Mexico? Were or you were you there at the same one with the, where Richard Dawkins debated? Uh, Depot. Yeah. Yes, okay. Yes. All right. So you we were, were there, there together. I think David yeah. Bus was there. Yeah. Helen yeah. Fisher. Yes, yes, Robert Sapolsky. So yeah. I think we all yeah. met in the bar. I think okay. there was a group of us. Right. Right. First, I thought, oh, that's who this guy is. That's. Right. <laughs> but then I think we also met in. Do you know Stanley Krippner? Yes. Okay. Yes. And and Stanley and I were at a conference in Portugal in like, I think it was in Oporto. Mm-hmm. in 2000, something right. like that. Right. And I think you gave a talk right. there and right. Stanley introduced us. I was a graduate student and he was he always right. made a point to introduce me to right. to people. And, you know, Stanley's such a wonderful guy. He is, and he's an interesting character from the skeptic's perspective because he kind of treads the line between the, yeah. the fringe nutters on yeah. one side and yeah. the hardcore you know, materialist science, scientists on the other. Yeah. And I, I think he's pretty good about keep, keeping a mind open enough that, you know, you never know. Try different experiences and see what they mean yeah. versus not being gullible. Right. And uh, Well, a, you know, he's a trained magician. Right. And, uh, you know, so that sort of gives him that insight into people who are, you know, trickery, trigger, right. you know. Right, right. 
Uh, this is one of the best skills you, 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 either you learn or you or you learn about for skeptic for skepticism. Yeah, is m- magic. That's yeah. why we like you know Penn and Teller and so on. Yeah, uh, because you realize, uh, okay, so if this guy does something I can't understand, before I attribute it to to real magic. I should keep in mind that when Copperfield walks through a wall, I know he's not actually walking through a wall. When Penn and Teller do the double bullet catch, the one thing we know they're not doing is actually catching a bullet. Right. Uh, so, you know, why attribute the one to magic and the other one to supernatural? Right. It's just all stuff I, I don't understand. I yeah. can't explain. Yeah. That's why Randy always says you should have a magician present at an investigation. Exactly. Because the guy's cheating. Exactly. Because they do. Yeah, I I often joke with Stanley that he's the only person I know who's got several people in his Rolodex that begin with the amazing. (laughs) Right. He's got the amazing Randy and the amazing Creston. Creston, You know, they're both friends of his. Right. He was on uh, The Tonight Show, uh, sort of monitoring Creston uh, a long time ago with Johnny, back in the Johnny Carson days. Yeah. Yeah, what a crazy. Well, Johnny scene. was into magic, so that's yeah. Why, that's he why he was a magician. Yeah, he was cautious when he the, the famous one where he had Uri Geller on. Yeah, where um, they set up a series of tests for him. And maybe that, that was the one Stanley was on. Uh, maybe it was well, Uri Geller. Well, Randy consulted on that when he wasn't oh, on the show. Oh, but he okay. Said, All, All right, right, here's what you do: you set up this equipment here. Don't let him touch it. Don't even let him see it. Right. Don't let his people see it. All right. And then you know, of course, the, then it starts, and Uri is like you know waving his hands over all this stuff. He's like, well, I'm just really not feeling it today. The energy is really <laughs> low here. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. pretty funny. Yeah. It's, so have you ever seen or experienced anything personally that you felt was inexplicable yourself? I have, yes, actually. And I've written about these. Uh, I mean, a few things that uh, happened long ago, like uh, I've done the sensory deprivation tanks back mm-hmm. in the 70s, where you, you start to hallucinate a little bit. I, I've done Michael Persinger's uh, God Helmet thing. Oh, have you? With the solenoids Well, on tell the me about that. I, I'm really well, interested it's, in that. Um, it, it, it's, it's not a super strong experience. It's not like drugs at all. Hmm. Um, it, you, you sit in a chair like the one you're sitting in, a big comfy chair in a darkened room with you know super thick walls and, and uh, sound padding and stuff. So it's essentially soundless you know, pitch black and you're in this comfort chair. And then they put this helmet on it and it has solenoids on the side. It looks like Jack Nicholson, easy rider helmet. Mm. And it bombards your temporal lobes with these uh, electromagnetic fields. So it's a pretty uh, weak effect, but, but it has some effect because the temporal lobes are associated with out of body experiences, near death experiences, sort of transient states, uh, floating, you know, it's just maybe a disorientation from, you know, your, point of location, that kind of thing. So I did that. I, I think, you know, I kind of felt like in my hour in that room that, you know, I, I had some anomalous experiences, like I was floating out of my body sort of thing. Mm. And uh, he, he said, yeah, that's right. Because at that point, that's when we cranked it up on your right temporal lobe or whatever. And, uh, you know, this is one of the ways we know that these kinds of experiences people have are real, but they're internal you know, because you can artificially stimulate them. The most famous examples are with open brain surgery, usually yeah. with epileptic patients. Right. You wake them up after you you know do the surgery part uh, while they're still uh, open, and you touch the brain with electrodes. It's one of the way they map the brain. Right. And these particular areas in the um, in the temporal lobe are associated with uh, somebody just reporting all of a sudden, whoa, I'm up by the ceiling looking down. You know, now I'm now I'm halfway down as they crank the electricity up or down. You know, so we know that brain states are, you know, mind states are controlled by the state of the brain. 
I wonder about that perspective issue. I'm up by the ceiling looking down. I wonder if, I mean, I guess it would be very difficult to set this up methodologically, but if you could have something that would be obscured from the perspective where the person is, person's body is, but visible from the ceiling, to see if there's an actual out-of-body experience taking place. There. Yes, well, there's an ongoing experiment uh, now in which um, in these hospitals, in rooms where they bring cardiac arrest patients and try to revive them, they, they have put on shelves objects and pictures facing up mm. such that if somebody does have an out-of-body experience and they look down, oh, they'll exactly. see it and yeah. they report it, right. and there's been no hits uh, so far. So, yeah. you know, that, so we're pretty sure... You know, with great confidence that these things are all internal states. Right. And it's one of the great values of reading like Oliver Sacks's work, mm. um, both from about his patients, you know, people that have all these anomalous psychological things yeah. because they're neurological damage of some kind, strokes, tumors, whatnot. Um, and then his own, you know, they, he dropped acid. He did here in Topanga. Yeah, in fact, yeah, that's it, right. That's yeah, right. Here yeah. in Topanga, that's right. It's, in in that's his in book, his... Uh, hallucinations, he right. talks about that. Yeah, right. So, if, if that's the case, we know that you know all these documented instances, it was all internal, not external. Uh, that in these other ones where we don't have an explanation, it's most likely internal. Yeah. Also. And yeah, uh, the internal external thing is an interesting distinction. You know, I, I mean it. I know what I know what you're talking about, and in most cases, it seems to be a, a tangible distinction. But I, I was asked to write a, a chapter for a, a medical textbook uh, in Spain, and they wanted me to write about pain. And I I was trying to make the point that the ex- pain is one of these things where questioning the reality of an experience of pain is sort of nonsensical. Right. Right. And so I open with, you know, saying, imagine you're, you're having a dream and you're, you're walking across a, a golf course and it's like beautiful, soft grass and you feel the dew on your toes and <laughs> it's wonderful. And then you step, you know, a snake bites right. your foot, right? right? It's a dream, but you react to it. Right. Your heart rate goes up. Right. You're, you're having hormonal releases. Adrenaline right. is going up. Right. You're having the physiological response to, a painful experience right that never happened right so it's both real and not so that real. is kind of an external state then you you, you might argue what's well, both that's external that's and internal right, right. i mean it's external if we're taking physiological response as an indication right um but i think so much of life is like that you know where it's both real and unreal, depending on which angle you're taking on it, you know? Well, again, I, uh, I'm fond of saying the experiences these people have are real. The question is, what do they represent? Hmm. You know, so if you have, you have people in the Middle Ages talking about being uh, abducted by demons in the middle of the night and sexually probed and, you know, oh, incubus of, and incubus, succubus, incubus yeah. and succubus yeah. and so on. And centuries later, they reported it was aliens that came in through the bedroom and sexually... Oh, they fucked the priest and they got <laughs> pregnant, and so they had to explain right. it in a way that nobody got in trouble. That's right. what it was. Come more, on. More prosaic explanation, <laughs> that's, yes. That's, <laughs> and there's always a priest fucking somebody <laughs> behind the virgin, all these or things. Or the Virgin Mary. How did yeah, the Virgin pregnant? Mary. Yeah. Oh, you it's see, a Miracle. This is sure. the thing. When you were gone that weekend, it was God that came over. That's right. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> hey, I wonder who Jesus' real father that's was. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the big oh, mystery. It's some, it's some shepherd. Come on, Dan know. Brown. Get on that. <laughs> some shepherd. There's a novel there. Yeah, sure. definitely. Definitely. Jesus is 
baby daddy. Or, you know, so in a way, the culture tells us what to call our internal right, anomalous. Right, right. So now it's it's aliens. And how come there's always anal probing involved? Yes. Well, What's because, up with that? Well, because it's, you know, humans are very sexual and our dreams are often have sexual components. So. Right. You know, whether it's, right. you know, women in the Middle Ages uh, or women getting... So it's, you know, the sleep paralysis, we think. There's right. often a sexual component to it. Right. And uh, that's that's a typical primate sort of thing. Hmm. It's what apes do. <laughs> Get anally probed? <laughs> yeah, or something <laughs> along those lines. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, uh, what about... Uh, are you familiar with John Mack's work? Yep, yep, absolutely. Right. I ha- um, I've never read it, but I know... He was at Harvard, right? Right, psychiatrist. Uh, he knew Carl Sagan pretty well. Right. And, uh, you know, they were at opposite ends on the interpretation of these alien abduction experiences. Carl was skeptical. Right. Uh, that, and just thought that they were internal states, similar to the, you know, demon possession stuff. Right. Uh, but Mac, you know, felt, you see, this is part of the, the difference between being a sort of an empirical scientist like Carl and being an experiential therapist where, you know, that it's, it's a different mindset when you sit down with your client you're supposed to just encourage them to open up and believe whatever they say right you're not supposed to be critical you're not right. supposed to be skeptical and i think that set them down this other path of saying well all these people are saying similar things there must be something to it mm. you know and that I, I have 10 anecdotes now i got 50 anecdotes now i got 100 anecdotes right. piling up and it feels real right and uh you know someone like sagan would say well it, it doesn't matter how many anecdotes you have right. it's irrelevant it's you know, we have to have some sort of mechanism some controls yeah the uh, plural of anecdote is not data right yeah. exactly yes right so, yeah um, yeah so he ended up believing and you know there's uh, a member of the uh, I did Bill Maher's show, the old one, Politically Incorrect, back in the 90s. And one of the episodes, he had uh, Whitley, Whitley Stryber on, the, the guy that wrote that book, Communion, mm. about his alien abduction experience. Yeah. And uh, this was a best-selling book at the time. It was one of the first to put you know, the alien head on the cover that then solidified what all aliens look like. <laughs> Before that, people had different experiences oh, really? of different kind of aliens. So, all short. Was this after E.T.? Yeah, after E.T., yeah. Because yeah. that had a pretty strong effect yes, on it the, did. the That's alien. Right. That, yeah, it began to solidify then. Yeah. You know, before... Well, before the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case was made into a made-for-TV movie in 1975, the aliens were all over the board. Hmm. Then, uh, you know, these NBC artists said, okay, well, what's it look like? What do they look like? So we got to, you know, we have to, it's a TV show. We have to show them. They always have big eyes. Yeah, the big eyes, bulbous head, almond-shaped eyes. Yeah. Maybe no ears, emaciated arms and legs. Right. And that's kind of when that began sort to solidify. Sort of fetal. Why would, a, why would an alien look fetal? It, yeah. it, well, and part of that comes from uh, um, sort of a, a evolutionary popular models of evolution, that human evolution. So we used to be apes, hairy, short, muscular, ah. and then we lost our hair and, and our head ne- got neo, bigger. So neo, 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 into the future, yeah, like right. the future, right. you're going to have these huge heads, right. emaciated, hairless right. bodies. There you go. That's that explains it. From, right? Yeah. Good point. So Whitney Stryber, I'm sitting there in the green room before we go on, and it's like, you know, so, you know, what, what do you do for a living? He says, well, <laughs> I, you know, I write science fiction and fantasy. I went, oh. Really? Okay. There <laughs> so, it is. So this uh, this new book is just you stamp nonfiction on the cover, whereas you know the rest were made up. No I thought shit. Maybe they were all just made up. 
you know so that was one of my earliest lessons in skepticism you know sometimes people just make stuff up yeah they have great fantasy you know fantasies and and people argue well but but the you know the details of the spaceship were so incredible yeah how how would anybody make that up it's like well just read harry potter or you know star wars the details of the millennium falcon are great so that's what writers do that's what fiction writers writers, you know it reminds me of you're talking about idea city in in uh, puebla I was in the green room there, and Deepak was there, and I this I was just standing around and started chatting with this guy, and the guy asked me what I thought of Deepak Chopra, and I said, well, you know, I think he's it's mostly bullshit, and you know, he seems like a nice enough guy, but you know, he's all this quantum this yeah, and quantum yeah. that stuff is a bunch of bullshit, and he laughed, and I said, what do you think? And he said, well, I can't really talk about it much. Because I work with Deepak. And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Why didn't you tell right. me that before? Um, but he had been hired uh, to do a film about oh, Deepak. Yes. Right. And uh, he was embedded. I don't remember the guy's name. I, I'm, I'm sure by now it's over, so I'm not getting him in any trouble. But what he said was, you know, he said, look, I think Deepak believes life is an illusion. So it doesn't really matter what he says. Because it's all just a dream anyway. Right. And it's like, wow, if you start with that, <laughs> right. you know, that's a pretty convenient way to look at things. I've gotten to know Deepak pretty well over the last year or so. Uh, I oh, mean, really? I've known him for 20, 20 years since we did a cover story on him, but we've had a pretty contentious relationship. Uh-huh. But, uh, but last year he invited my wife and I to come down to his center in, in Carlsbad oh. uh, and hang out for the week weekend, long three-day weekend. And uh, I did the whole immersion thing, the meditation, the massages, the the tea and the healthy food and all that stuff. And Any anal probing? <laughs> no, there was no. <laughs> that's, the, that's the deluxe package. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the week-long package. <laughs> stuff. Uh, but it, it, I think um, he really believes that this stuff he talks about. He's not making stuff up. Uh, you know, and he's not the only one. That That's sort of that, that those spiritual seekers, that Eastern wisdom tradition, as he calls it, kind of a westernized Buddhism, mm. you know, in search of a scientific explanation for what it is they believe, which is what gets them into quantum physics and all that because of the spooky stuff that happens at this right. subatomic level. Right. So I think what he's trying to do is find some materialist scientific grounding for kind of a modern Buddhism, which is that it's all an illusion. All this physical stuff is an illusion. Yeah. Consciousness is the ground. He calls it the ground of being. Yeah. You know, you can't get underneath consciousness you can't explain it from brains you know just of course you need a brain like you need a radio set to pick up the radio waves that's the analogy although have you read about these people who are born with like basically a brain stem and they're conscious uh no i don't know that yeah there's there i can give you the the link when we finish here but there are a couple of articles i read recently uh within the last two or three years uh, neurologists, like someone would come in for a, uh, you know, they're having some sort of seizure or pain or whatever, and they do a brain scan and they find that they have like a third of a normal brain. And right. somehow they're conscious and they have jobs and they're working, right. and yet they're, they're functioning as right. a, as a, you know, normal so if they person. don't have a cortex or, or areas where memories are stored, then yeah, the memories are stored somewhere else. I obviously. guess so, yeah. yeah. It's well, one yeah. of those many things I thought, I have to look into this more, and then yeah. I just didn't get around to it because it's not relevant. Christoph to- Koch makes this point about consciousness, why it's such a hard problem to solve, is because 
you know, the moment you identify some brain area associated with some function X, whatever, uh, and then you, and then you find some patient that doesn't have that, and they can still do it. Right. Well, then then apparently that's not the only place where that can happen. Right. You know? Well, they're finding uh, much more distributed. Yeah, right. into yeah. the gut even. Emotions yes. seem to be there. Are all these neurons right. in the gut and. Right. Yeah, it uh, there does seem to be something more holistic happening, and certainly there's a plasticity, a neuroplasticity that right. 20 years ago we were told was impossible. Right. There was no neuroregeneration right. in the right. brain, and now we see right. that there is. Encouragingly for us that are getting yeah. older. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, who was the guy? There's the famous case of the guy who had like a, a pole through his brain. That, you know that? that? That's right. Yeah. Who was that? Yeah, that was yeah. a long time ago. That's that sort of in all the textbooks. Yeah. 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 The guy was he was a railroad worker and he was tamping down some gunpowder with a big steel rod. That's and right. It exploded and went up through his right. His brain. And he became he could still function, but he became really sort of he, an asshole. Yes. He yeah. Was. Well, so the damage was in the prefrontal cortex. The, the kind of control centers of your brain right and so he was just basically raw impulse right just saying whatever he felt like you know the wow guy, we'd he'd all be, be president assholes. today <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. right <laughs> just just he'd be tweeting constantly uh, yeah i was night. just watching his press conference <laughs> oh, yeah. while waiting for you he just okay. uh, trump just gave a press conference right. it was the dude i mean i don't want to get all topical because people will be listening to this long after trump has been impeached uh, but uh, man, he, he just looked like a scared substitute teacher, just right. winging it. You know, right. no idea what's going on. Right. Well, so uh. that's the idea of the you know impulse control is you 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 plot things that plan things out. Right. And people that have less of that, you know, they they can't delay gratification. Mm. They, they don't think things through as carefully, and as a consequence, you know, they're they're more likely to commit crimes and be violent. So, you know, this is one of the theories about the decline of violence is that we, over the centuries, learn more impulse control. Um, you know, so that's pretty, pretty vital. But where that happens in the brain, you know, and so on, and why people that have damage that don't have the negative effects, again, it could be distributed. And someone like Deepak would say, well, it's because, you know, it's not, it's not there in the brain. It's elsewhere that the brain's just tapping into. Yeah. But my response to that is, you know, like the TV analogy. Well, you need the TV set to pick up the TV waves coming in. But we know there's broadcasting uh, production facilities that send the waves out. Where is the equivalent of that for consciousness in the universe? Deepak's answer is nowhere, because consciousness is everywhere. It's the ground of being. It's everything. So at this point, you know, it's like, well, but that's like being a pantheist or something. You know, God is everything and everywhere. It's in the cup and the tree and the grass. And then, then what isn't God? What, what would falsify the hypothesis? Nothing. You know, then you, you're, you sort of end up at, at a, a epistemological wall of like, well, okay, that's nice. Uh, now what? <laughs> what do we talk about next? Because it's just sort of the end of the right. Which doesn't make it untrue. That's right. Yep. Right. The fact that something is not falsifiable doesn't mean it's not true. That's it just right. means it's right. not susceptible to a scientific investigation. Right. Yeah. So yeah. now he thinks like meditation is a way of tapping into that, mm. uh, and that, and that better for integrating a body and mind and all that. And right. so that's one of the reasons I went there to see what that was like. You know, it takes a while. I'm not good at this. Um, you know, someone like my friend Sam Harris who meditates a lot. You know, he says people like me, he doesn't say this about me, but, you know, it's thinking with your eyes closed. You're just sitting there with your eyes closed, but you're still yeah. getting all the flot th thought flooding. Right. That's not meditation. Right. So it takes a lot of practice. But if you do it, uh, he, Deepak has published some studies showing it does have measurable effects, you know, oh, reduces sure. stress hormones. And not just Deepak. There's a right. large literature right. of right. psychoneuroimmunology right. showing... Right. Uh, 
uh, immune response to to that sort of uh, reduction of stress. Certainly, right. yeah. Robert Sapolsky's done a lot of right. work in that area. Right. Yeah. Of course, I have to say, going to Carlsbad, California, there on the beach at a resort, and having <laughs> massages and eating great food, and right. you know, I was like, how could you not feel better? Yeah, and you're not working. <laughs> not working. Yeah, yeah. Right. Not tweeting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no social media allowed. Right. Yeah, that in itself is very relaxing. I, I feel that way about. I'm not religious, but. Uh, there's a church in Barcelona, I, I, the Santa Maria del Mar, for those of you who are going to Barcelona. It's my favorite church in the world just because it's so relaxing and so beautiful. And, right. you know, there's the space, the, the architecture, the, the feeling of being there is really beautiful. And, you know, it's a 13th century church. Yep. There's a sense of history and time. And so it doesn't matter the belief system. Right. That's right. You know. I, I go to cathedrals whenever I get a chance, particularly in Europe. My mm. wife's from Cologne, Germany, so oh, a that's huge, a beautiful the cathedral there. there yeah. And of, you yeah. know, I'm not religious; I'm an atheist, and, and still, I you know, I totally get it. I feel it. You yeah. know, go in there. Yeah. You know, it's a different air, different sound. Right. You know, the light coming through the stained glass. Fucking window. frankincense and myrrh, man. Yeah. <laughs> That'll it's do like it. These guys figured this out you know, <laughs> centuries ago. They yeah. figured out this. We're gonna wow the masses. Sure. Yeah. And of course, before modern architects. You know, th- these were the biggest things you could see for, you know, 100 miles oh, away. Oh, yeah. And sure. uh, it must have been awe-inspiring. Still are. Yeah, I mean, that's how, right. how good they are, yeah. Right. In the age of IMAX theaters right. and Trump Tower, it's still yeah. awe-inspiring. Um, you, you mentioned you're an atheist, of course. You know, that's one of your calling cards. But were you raised in a religious tradition? No, not not in any religious tradition. What were your, weren't religious at all. Were they scientists? Nope, nope, nope. They were, neither one, one of them went to college. Uh, and my bio dad was, a, like, was an engineer for the Southern Pacific Railroad and my uh, stepdad was, you know, car salesman and then owned a car dealership and, mm-hmm. you know, not, nothing. And, but I, I got religious initially in high school in, in the early 70s when mm-hmm. the evangelical movement was taking off. Uh, re- really not religion, but, you know, direct communication with God and Jesus in the Bible. Mm. And so that this is when there were all these like meeting, you know, Bible study classes, things like this you could go to. More social, play guitar, mm. all that kind of kumbaya. Meet girls. Meet girls, yeah, the whole thing. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, but I, you know, I got into it, seriously. And mm. I, so I went to Pepperdine University here in Malibu mm. um, and to study theology. And, you know, oh, really? Oh, you know, I got into it totally. And I, I was, you know, I went door to door with my Bible, you know, witnessing Amway with Bibles kind of thing, you know, and, mm. and, uh, yeah, so I, you know, I totally understand the worldview of the Christian evangelical because that's what I did for about seven years. And, um, what know, age? Well, so I was 17 to about 24. Right. 23, 24. Important years in a young man's life. Yeah, yeah. But it was easy for me. I gave it up in graduate school quietly. But, you know, I had no commitments. I wasn't married, didn't have friends that were religious. Right. I think most of my family was relieved that I gave it up because I quit talking about it. You know, every dinner, you know, let's let's all pray now. Let's talk about Jesus. And, you know, because that's what you're supposed to do as an evangelical, is evangelize. That's your job is to tell people about Jesus. And, uh, you know, so I'm pretty sure I alienated friends and family and they were probably glad I gave that up but there was nothing to lose I feel bad for the people that are like our age and they live in some small town in the Midwest right. everybody they know right. spouse family friends co-workers they all go to the same church or 
yeah. which church do you go to right. is the only question. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if they write me, you know, they, they don't believe anymore, but they don't want to tell anybody. And it's like, oh, boy. It's like being in a marriage that's over, but you can't leave it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly. It's a good analogy. Um, what, what was it that pulled you out of that or what changed? For uh, well, what, first, for, what were you studying in grad school? Uh, psychology. So that helped in, in part because you understand belief systems and how they work. But especially while I was studying, it was in an experimental psych graduate program, but I took courses in anthropology. Yeah. And uh, I had this really uh, interesting anthropologist, Marlene de Rios, something. And she married a South American, uh, one of these sort of spiritual gurus. She, they were totally into experimenting with like ayahuasca and studying, you know, spirituality. And I know religion. her name, I feel like. Yeah, she's written books about this. Okay, uh, yeah. And... And I got to thinking, you know, these people believe as strongly as I do. It's completely different religion. It has nothing to do with Christianity. Were you at Santa Cruz? No, this was at Cal State Fullerton. Fullerton, okay. Yeah, huh. yeah Marlene de Rios. Uh, something, yeah. Something, yeah. yeah. And yeah. she's written a couple of books about the use of ayahuasca right. by, by these South American right. um, shamans and yeah. so on. And, and so that was part of it. It was like, because you study sort of comparative world religions and mythologies, you know. So I did all the Joseph Campbell stuff. You know, right. Like, wow. These, you know, what are the chances that I, at you know, age twenty, figured it all out and got the right one? So and you all got these other detribalized. People, yeah, detribalized. Yeah, that's a, that's Joseph a perfect Campbell's, term, right? Yeah. And at a secular university like Fullerton, instead of Pepperdine, you're mm. not in a bubble. Pepperdine, right. you're just in the bubble. Everyone believes, so it's right. like you're kind of protected and reinforced right. confirmation bias and all that. Fullerton, no one cared. No one talked about it. And this was before the, the whole new atheism thing, before atheism was even a thing. No one, no one would identify, oh, I'm an atheist. You know, right. just like, well, I'm just not religious. It wasn't a thing to talk about. And uh, so, you know, giving it up, no one even noticed or cared. And uh, so that was pretty. Well, your easy. family noticed it, didn't well, it? Well, yes, that's right. Thank yeah, no more. God. <laughs> exactly. That storm has passed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now we can talk about politics and uh, abortion. <laughs> right. Non controversial. <laughs> exactly. Well, it used to be, you know, talking about religion, you know, was pretty. Uh, uh, you know, anxiety producing around people that have different beliefs. Yeah. But I think that's nothing now compared to uh, modern politics. Yeah. You know, if, if you don't say just the right thing, you know, uh, boy, well, it's, oh boy. I mean, in a sense, it kind of feels like the, the energy and the judgment and the sort of absolutist stance right. of religion has moved into politics because it's been discredited in religion so right, much right because of people like you <laughs> yeah <laughs> see now it's like you know it's like a grease fire you, you know if you throw water on the grease fire it just spreads You're right that's right i think that's what's happening it <laughs> yeah. was nicely sort of corralled off there into the religious area and now it's everywhere <laughs> yeah well, back um, to your first question, yeah. I did. There was another anomalous experience I should I should mention because I've written about this and I've got more mail about this uh, in, in Scientific American column than anything else I've written, which is I had this weird experience on the day of my wedding to my uh, wife Jennifer, who's from Germany. I mentioned uh, this was a couple of years ago now, and and uh, so we just just kind of on a whim decided to get married. Went to the um, the Beverly Hills courthouse and you know did the paperwork and stuff, but we wanted to have a little ceremony with my friends and family. And she had nobody here. So we were doing this at my house in Altadena at the time. And um, as a backstory to this, um, she had shipped over a bunch of her stuff over the months, one of which was this old radio that her grandfather had. She was raised by a single mom and her grandfather, her mom's dad. 
and they used to listen to this radio together. It's a little Philips transistor radio from 1970s. And uh, when they were doing stuff, and so then he died, and she always kept this radio as like a connection, but it was dead for years and years. And so she shipped it over, and I thought, well, you know, I'm going to surprise her. I'm going to get this thing working, you know. So I put batteries in there, and I checked it out. I did the, you know, the percussion technique where you slap it on a hard surface. I couldn't get it to work, you know. And uh, so when she, she moved here, and it's like, oh, I tried to get the radio to work. Ah, it didn't work. So we just threw it in the back of a drawer. And, uh, and then the day of the wedding, you know, she's like, I'm really feeling bad that I, you know, I just that my you know, mom's not here. I don't know anybody. I hardly know your friends and family. And uh, she, I just need a moment alone. So we go back into the back bedroom, and we hear this music playing. And I'm like, well, that's really weird because I don't have a stereo system here. And maybe I left my iPhone. No, it's not my iPhone. Maybe my laptop is open. No, my laptop's not. What do the neighbors have music playing? This is so weird. And then, you know, the, the, where the, the, the drawer that the radio is in was underneath this fax machine that's also a scanner. I thought, well, maybe they're putting radios in these things now. I mean, they got everything else in these things. Nope, that wasn't it. So Jennifer was like, what? Oh, my God. What if it's the radio? So she opens the drawer and this radio is on. And it's playing like this romantic music, perfectly tuned to the station. And it's like, holy shit, this is unfucking believable. So we go out, you know, it's like, look at this radio. I tell them the whole story. Everybody's like, oh, that's so cool. You know, and so I had to play the rest of the day and night, uh, you know, it was a romantic uh, day in the evening. And next day it went dead and it's been dead ever since. Anyway, so I wrote about this in Scientific American. So, of course, some of my hardcore readers are like, oh, no, Shermer's gone off the bend. Because yeah. I didn't make any conclusions. I just said, I have no explanation for this. I'm sure there's some, you know, little particle on the, the wires or, you know, the capacitor came, whatever. But it was the timing. And right. perfectly, it could have been tuned in between. It could have stations. been static or sports yeah. or yeah, what, Mexican. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. right, exactly. And uh, so it's like, you know, what do I conclude from this? Nothing. It's like, it, this is just revel in the mystery, you know, appreciate yeah. the emotional salience of it for my right. life. Right, And and just, uh, just enjoy it. You don't have to explain everything, you know. Mm. But the most interesting effect was you know hundreds of letters I got from people that had similar experiences, you know long pages long stories about these incredibly unusual, statistically unlikely things that happened to them that were emotionally important to them right. and only them. Right. You know this lady had this story about this pendant that went missing for decades, and then all of a sudden she's in Spain or something, and this there's the pendant, you know right. that kind of thing. Right. Now I mean we can offer statistical you know law of large numbers, you know we only yeah. hear about the hits, like, but. That's sort of beside the point that, you know, anomalous things happen. Uh, you don't have to explain everything from a purely materialist scientist perspective. Maybe it's, maybe the grandfather's on the other side, make it, you know, maybe not, who knows. But it's okay to just go, you know what, that was really cool. See, I find, I find that perspective very refreshing because my understanding, and, and I, granted, I haven't like waded into this whole atheist debate very much um, just because I don't really care that much. Good. I think I'm... You're an apatheist. You don't care. <laughs> uh, it's like what other people believe is up to them. Right. It doesn't concern me that much, you know, and, and, I, and my own beliefs aren't really... I feel like I'm not going to be convinced one way or the other. So why bother, right, you know, and, right. and also people get so excited about it. I, do. I don't need more stress in my life. <laughs> they do. Right. Um, <laughs> Politics is enough. You don't. Need yeah, to know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, but it, it's repre it's refreshing to hear you be open to the fact that anomalous things happen and they don't need to be explained away, which I feel like a lot of 
people I know who consider themselves to be atheists are very militant. And I would say, you know, I'm sure you've heard this a million times. There's a religious fervor yes. <laughs> uh, fueling a lot right. of the new atheists' um, arguments. I feel yes. like Richard Dawkins sort of sets himself up for that a lot, you know, um, where it's like you, a lot of stuff happens that's inexplicable. There, there's a lot that happens in evolution that evolutionary theory does not explain. Right. That doesn't mean evolutionary theory isn't valid. It right. just means it doesn't cover everything, you right. know, and no thought, no, no sort of uh, intellectual approach to things is going to explain everything. And it's arrogant to think that anything can, I think. Right. You know, so I, I mean, I, I got an email recently from a guy, really nice guy, uh, who was like, look, I've heard you say on your podcast a few times that you're sort of you know, you respect Buddhism, but you don't really believe it. And you're just, so I'm here to explain to you, you know, why Buddhism is, in fact, the, you know, the true uh, oh, path. Okay. And that B- Buddhism is not based on conjecture. It's based on knowledge. Right. And, you know, so, you know, feel free to, you know, ask me anything you want. <laughs> and we went back and forth a few times. And in the end, I felt I feel guilty. I feel like I'm, I'm going to talk this guy out of his certainty. <laughs> Right. You know, because his right. his evidence for, you know, the truth of his belief system is a couple personal experiences that were beautiful experiences. Right. But, man, right. you know, you could interpret those or frame those in any number of different ways. Right. And you're just choosing to take that as evidence that supports your right. pre-existing belief system. Right. Anyway, I don't know why I'm ranting about that. But, yeah, well, that's why I don't like to get into yeah, those discussions because yeah. I feel like no matter what, it's going to be, I don't want to convince someone. I mean, I get into this a lot with friends who have kids. Like, I think the world's fucked. I think civilization's <laughs> been a huge disaster. You're wearing a civilized to death t-shirt right now. Oh, <laughs> that's what that means. That's okay. what, yeah. All right. You mean we're a bunch of apes and we're doomed? <laughs> well, we are apes and uh, we are doomed. Yes, I guess that is what it means. Uh, well, well, talking people out of something, as the saying goes, talking people out of something that they didn't, you, you can't be talked into in the first place or reason them out of something they didn't reason their way to in the first right, place. Right, right. It's probably a pointless task. Well, and people who have kids, you know, I don't want to convince them that the world's getting worse. Right. You know, like right. they have kids. They want to believe it's they have to believe it's getting better. Right. You know what I mean? Like, who, who am I helping by convincing them they're wrong in that belief? I, right. I don't know. Yeah. So, I mean, the atheism movement has kind of gone through something of a of an upheaval the last decade or so. Mm. As, as I mentioned, in the 70s, it wasn't a thing really in the 80s. No. So did but, Christopher but, Hitchens sort of start well, the whole thing? It, it, there's it's sort of the backdrop to it, I think, was the when the moral majority and, uh, you know, get, gained political power in the 80s with Reagan uh-huh. and Jerry Falwell and, and all them, you know, sort of pushed through into the 90s and gained some political momentum. Right. Um, and so that kind of got to the hackles of atheists. So it started to bubble up a little bit in the late 90s. So it was political from the get-go. In yeah, a I sense. think so. Yeah. Uh, Dawkins took his book manuscript originally, his proposal. Uh, we have the same agent, John Brockman. Uh, and I think it was 99. And, and Big idea, John Brockman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and and uh, he, I think he shopped around a little bit. And it was like, no, it's really, no, no, this is not really a, a book. Which book was that? The, the God Delusion. The God Delusion, yeah. right. But after, then 9-11 happened, and, uh, you know, the Bush administration got all, uh, you know, we're going to invade, hmm. the, you know, all these 
countries and all this stuff. And, and, and then uh, Brockman took it around in 05 and boom, you know, he got bids on it and, and then it became a you know mega That's bestseller. Crazy. That's crazy. And, so, and I, Richard Dawkins was already very, very right, well right. known. So I think it was the culture was set. Not in the 90s, but in the 2000s. Yeah. It was bubbling up in the 90s, but it really exploded. Yeah. It, along with uh, Hitch's book, God is Not Great, right. Sam Harris's book, The um, uh, End of Faith, right. and then Dan Dennett's book, all came out that same year. Right. Um, uh, and I think that's launched it. Then it became, you know, what kind of atheist are you? Are you militant enough? It's like easy now, easy. Yeah, you know, that's I'm the religious atheist. fervor. Yeah, but yeah. You know, it's not, not my thing to go out. To, you know, I'm a science guy. Right. The Skeptic Society, which I direct, this is my job. You know, we're a science magazine, a pro-science organization. We promote science. We're not an atheist organization. Because that, what does that even mean? Yeah, there's no worldview. So, what do atheists believe? We, nothing. We just don't believe in God. Yeah, it's like the anarchy organization. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah exactly. You know, if, you know, if you're humanists, you know, well, okay, we believe in civil rights and civil liberties right. and equal treatment under the law and reforming the justice system and this and that. You know, we have humanists have a whole set of planks in their platform that they, but atheists, nothing. It's just like we're, you know, we just don't believe in God. Now what? But do you disbelieve in God? Well, okay, so strong atheism is is the, you know, I believe there is no God. And that sort of weak atheism is I just don't believe in God. Right. And agnosticism is just it's not possible to know. Right. This term was coined by um, uh, uh, Thomas Huxley, Henry Huxley, in, in 1869. Darwin's bulldog. Darwin's bulldog, in which he was asked this question, well, what are you, atheist or theist? He's like, well, you know, I just don't know. I don't think we can know. I don't think there's any way science can no, I didn't prove know it one way or the other. Time. So he called no. it agnostic without knowledge. Right. But he doesn't. But the term does, did not originally mean I'm waiting to see, like just one more experiment, just a better argument, and I could be tipped one way or the other. The real position of agnosticism is just not knowable. Let's stop talking about it. You ever watch a show called... Uh Peaky Blinders? No, I've never heard of that. It's a really good show. It's a British show about like a... a gypsy family uh criminal family in uh early 20th century birmingham uh fantastic show but i remember there was a line where the main character is asked uh his religious beliefs and he says religion is a stupid answer to a ridiculous question (laughs) that's funny (laughs) yes yeah. Well, you know, for the most part, your approach fits most people, I think. Um, I, I guess what Sam or, or Richard or in some cases myself would, would counter with, with, like, what about militant Islam? You know, a lot of these people are blowing themselves up and killing people in the name of God, in the name of paradise, in the name of the right. 72 virgins. Right. You know, we're going, and, and, and it's definitely motivated mainly religiously. Yes, there's political motives, economic motives. You know, why, why do these guys join ISIS? Yes, they're bored or they get a job or they get free sex, whatever. But really, the, the foundation beneath it is, you know, you know, we are, you know, we are promoting this foundational belief of Islam. That's, you know, Sharia law. Paradise is coming for martyrs in Islam. The, the, the direct route past the judgment stage is martyrdom. Like right. if, you, if you kill yourself or die in a battle. 
And um, so that they there, the argument would be like, that would be nice if everybody was like you and, and I and, and, and your Buddhist friend, because your Buddhist friend is not going to blow himself up. You know, let him have his belief. Who cares? You know, Deepak consciousness is everything or it isn't. It doesn't really matter because right. none of us is going to you know, act on it right. in any dangerous way. So it's the fundamentalists. And this is, you know, this is not just religion. I mean, you know, decades ago, it was the Marxist uh, revolutionaries well, see, blowing that, themselves that's, up. I was going to question your premise there because, you know, you said the underlying, uh, I guess the underlying appeal that draws people into this is the religious thing. Uh, but I think the, the argument that makes more sense to me is that, you know, unemployment is 50% or higher in most of these countries uh, among young people. The, the countries have been humiliated by decades of Western foreign policy that, you know, right. installs murderous regimes. And, you know, we send our guys in there to teach them how to torture their own people and subvert any sort of social movement. Right. Right. I mean, we, we being the West, Europe and yeah. the United States, have just humiliated, systematically humiliated and disempowered people in the Middle East for right. centuries because we wanted access to their oil. Right. And so out of that humiliation grow belief systems. In this case, it happens to be militant Islam, but it could just as easily be militant nationalism. Right. It could just as easily be, you know, it, it is Marxism, misogyny. Yeah. Right. You know, it's as we see in the South, you know, poor whites hate blacks. Right. You know, it, whatever it is, it's growing out of the out of this fertile uh, ground that we've cultivated. And so we, by, this is where I differ from Bill Maher. By blaming it on Islam itself, I think we're missing the point. Yeah. I think Sam Harris does this he as well. He might be right. I mean, a century ago, it was the, you know, the terrorists were anarchists. Right. So, uh, and as you say, then they were communists right. or, or, you right. know, or, or free market capitalists or, you know, the, the Japanese uh, kamikazes, you know, the, the, they, there was some religious understanding that they would go to heaven, I believe. But mostly it was for the king. Right. right. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Hirohito and stuff. Right. So right. I think like that sort of absolutist, I will sacrifice myself for the cause comes upstream of whatever the cause happens I think that's to be. probably right. Yes, I think yeah. that's probably right. At the moment, for some, anyway, it is, uh, you know, militant Islam. Yeah. Uh, but that, that too shall pass, and then it'll probably be something else. Right, right. The, the deeper problem probably is tribalism. So I liked your term, detribalize. you got to detribalize these people. I think that's a Joseph Campbell <laughs> oh, it is? Uh, okay. thing. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. It's... The first step of educating yourself is to understand you come from a tribe and then to detribalize yourself and, right. and sort of recognize, you know, step outside of that. You were talking about meditation earlier and you mentioned that you'd been in sensory deprivation tanks. Have you been in them recently in the no, new ones? No. Oh, you got to get, get back into it. It's yeah. it's a totally new thing. Well, largely f thanks to our friend Joe Rogan, who's a great proponent of, um, you know, floating. The oh, industry. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. He, the, he's got a tank at his house. He does? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And so in, in the 80s, that whole sort of business, because there were float centers around, shut down because everyone was like afraid of catching AIDS right, from being right. in water someone else had right. been in. Right. Um, and then largely thanks to Rogan and, and, you know, extreme filtering systems and all this, they filter all the water, you know, right. after every float and all right. that. Um, it's come back and it's oh. a big business now. They have oh, annual right. conferences. There's, I've, I first floated in Austin at my buddy Kevin's place. 
uh, Zero Gravity Institute. And then in Portland, <laughs> I, um, you know, because you're sort of associated with Joe Rogan, they'll reach out and like, hey, man, free floats. Somebody will listen to this. You live in Altadena? Well, now I live in Santa Barbara. Oh, OK. Oh, because there's a float center up there in Pasadena. There I could, is. I okay, well, I come down once a week. I'll, I'll do it again. I'd like to I'd love to do it again. Right. It's it. very comfortable. Yeah. And now they're rooms, they're chambers. So, okay. you know, the, it's not claustrophobic. Right. You can and um but it's quiet and dark. It's totally and, quiet. Room temperature. You know, you float your your mouth, your face is above water. So, right. um, but yeah, it's, a, it's and so and salt, to me, it's salt water, right? So that you oh float. yeah, it's yeah. very uh, high salinity. Yeah, and so you also get a lot magnesium, which is good for you. Right. It, it comes yeah, in yeah. through your skin and all that. But to me, I've always had. I've meditated a lot. I did the ten day vipassana thing. Oh, wow. You know, okay. I've. Right. You know, I've done a lot of that kind of stuff, but it's always been very hard for me to stop thinking, as you were saying, you know, Um, or even the closest I got was like the Vipassana thing was like a 10 day porn festival in my in my head. It was just you relived every it was woman you'd ever been with oh i went way beyond that man I, that was the first even the day. ones you hadn't been with <laughs> that was day, day two through ten was you know conjecture um but it was right. uh you know that was as close as i could get but as soon as i went into a flow tank was a helicopter flying over we're being strafed oh my god it's the nsa yeah <laughs> like it's a little loud for a drone <laughs> yeah. uh i uh in the flow tank i was able to actually get into a meditative state really easily mm. because i wasn't distracted by my body right you know my back hurts my hips right. my knees my right. you know you just your body just disappears and you know, you go the first, you know, 15 minutes or something, you're thinking about, oh, shit, I forgot to call. Right. And then it just all fell away effortlessly. Uh-huh. So check it out. It, I Did mean, you, for me anyway, it's great. Have you had any great. hallucinations of any kind or just? Or, yeah, actually, I saw Joe Rogan's floating, <laughs> floating above me with a, a golden halo at one point. I thought, oh, St. Joe of the float tank. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I, my anomalous experience is... Um, and I've had a bunch of them. I've had uh, precognitive stuff happen a few times, uh, sometimes associated with dreams, sometimes in a waking state. Um, I had one experience actually with Stanley that was really interesting that we sort of uh, were able to to verify in a scientific way. But But a lot of the, well, not a lot. I mean, I've had half a dozen experiences like that. Uh, as an adult, but several of them have been, interestingly, have been around the use of hallucinogens, but before I took the hallucinogens. Oh. Yeah. You know, I've never done that. I'd like to try it. Oh, you never done any no. hallucinogens? No. Nope. Uh, what would I try? DMT? Because I told you I watched that documentary, The Spirit Molecule, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, hosted by Joe Rogan. Yeah. Uh, that seems like you, you could do it harmlessly, right? It doesn't cause any ma- massive bodily changes. No, no. DMT exists in your body naturally, right, so your right. body knows how to metabolize it right. completely cleanly. Um, yeah, DMT is an extremely intense short-lived experience so it's 10 15 minutes all right but like blast into the you know outer (laughs) universe it's right um generally people report uh an absence of ego so it's no longer 
you. It's no longer, uh, you know, you or me experiencing this. It's just experience. It's just pure, right. like, holy shit kind right. of. Right, right. Um, but, you know, in terms of, I don't know how much you would learn from that. If it's something, you know, you haven't done. I just thought it'd be fun to write about it is one of my Scientific American columns. I took this took this drug and this is what I experienced. And I'm not I sure mean, what it means. These really. days, I, I would think as a writer, what I would be probably more drawn to is an ayahuasca experience, oh, right. which contains DMT. Okay. Um, but there's a whole culture uh, that's around that and it's growing very rapidly. Oh. And it's interesting in the sense that What's happened with ayahuasca, I don't know to what extent this is true, but the story I heard is that some of the shamans in South America realized that there was no way to stop this onslaught of the Western world coming in and, you know, their cultures were right. going were gonna to be face destruction. Uh, and instead of trying to defend themselves against the inevitable, what they needed to do was to change, to help the the dominant culture sort of find its way and so they sent people out into the western world to spread the word of ayahuasca sort of an evangelical approach right right? Right. um and so ayahuasca has taken off in the last four or five years it's taken off in popularity in the united states it's in silicon valley it's in la it's in portland you know there are some sort of flying under the radar in some cases there's a religious exemption so sort of with le- a, it's le- quasi legal. I think it's quasi legal, <laughs> yeah. depending on the state. I'm not sure yeah, exactly yeah. what the rules are on Maybe that. Maybe I'll have to go to Oregon or something. Well, there's a peyote thing, you know, oh, right. the, the, and right. people can be. Uh, a friend of mine just did this ayahuasca, an ayahuasca ceremony in Joshua Tree, and he said that the woman that he did it with registered him under the rubric of a Native American tribe, so right. it therefore was the legal. Exemption thing, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, from a writing yeah, perspective, yeah. that's that the cultural thing would be interesting. And the experience with ayahuasca is interesting because it's there's ritual around it. It's non-religious in most cases. There are yeah, two churches yeah, in yeah. Brazil that are use it. Uh Unio de Vegetal and um uh Santo Daime. They're two organized churches that have uh, right. the right to use it. Um, but anyway, yeah, I can. Yeah, I'd want the culture surrounding it because that's part of the interest. I'm exactly. Sure that yeah. probably makes the experience better if you have exactly. a build up to it. Yeah, the and there's a diet like for a week beforehand. There's a strict right. dietary right. thing and like no sex and no alcohol. And so you sort of Wait, change what? your life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Was it the sex or the alcohol? That... <laughs> Both. I mean, come on. <laughs> You've only been married two years. Come on. <laughs> But I mean, in that documentary, they had these guys going into like a hospital clinic, and that just seems uh, cold. No, no, and no. I don't want to do that. I want to be out. No, in the go to the desert, desert somewhere. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, like Jim Morrison, and the you know, going to go out here and and meet the shaman. Yeah. Uh, something like that. Yeah. Well, we can, we can talk about that well, just, uh, when we in, turn in the a, mics off. In a way, it's like um, you know, trying to understand the worldview of other people. Yeah. You have to kind of get get into it. Go do it. Well, you know about. When LSD was legal, right? Right. When Timothy Leary first started, it was more experimental. It was it was actually marketed to psychiatrists and psychologists right. as a psychotomimetic right. so that they could experience their patients' psychosis and therefore understand them better oh, and right. help them. Right, right. 
But I think there were also some treatment uh, uh, uses of it initially. Well, there was a, the a lot of research the uh, in yeah. the 50s and, and mid, early to mid-60s. There's a lot of research, tens of thousands of papers on use of LSD. The CIA, of course, was interested in using it for interrogation control, or right? for you know, yeah. spraying it over the enemy and <laughs> make everyone go crazy and all that. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, and that's starting again now. A lot of uh, in, on this podcast, I've had a lot of people on who are doing research with hallucinogens and um, ecstasy. Uh, MDMA is very right. useful in therapy. Right. And I was uh, I was in Israel at a MDMA conference around the time you and I first met. It was ninety nine. Uh, that was sponsored by the Israeli military. Interestingly, oh, right. right? They uh, they said that they wanted to use it for treating soldiers who were suffering from PTSD, which I'm sure was true. But I think they probably were also interested in it as an interrogation tool. Right. Which hey, if you're going to have electrodes, you know, tied <laughs> right. to your balls, or <laughs> you you're going to take some <laughs> take some acid, yeah. <laughs> Well, my next yeah. book is called Heavens on Earth, about the quest for immortality. So I mm. I have a chapter on uh, near-death experiences, and I start with Eben Alexander's book, uh, Proof of Heaven. And, you know, because in a coma state, he had this fantastic hallucination where he went to heaven, fly you know, on the wing of a butterfly, this beautiful woman, and all these colors, and the sights and sounds were so rich, and, and love. I was just, just overwhelmed with the sense of love. He goes on and on about this. So then I have a quote, a passage from the opening of Sam Harris's book, uh, Waking Up, in which he talks about, I, I took uh, ecstasy, and, and then he describes the experience, which sounds just like, you know, even Alexander's. And then uh, I talked from um, Oliver Sacks' autobiography, where he, or, no, I think it was the hallucination book, where he talks mm. about dropping acid himself. And, mm. and uh, you know, he's sitting in this diner, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, proboscis heads appear on the other customers, and all this crazy stuff is happening. And then another one about love and all this incredible feelings of love. It's like, what's the difference? I mean, even Alexander just had a trip mm. triggered by something else. You know, his coma state triggers something, because he's chemicals are naturally occurring well, DMT in the brain, right? is secreted at death right and at right, birth right yeah right, right yeah so there must be the trauma of, of surgery or near drowning accidents comas probably triggers a release of these chemicals and you report what you report is similar to what other now the details may be slightly different but that's not important the important thing is the brain is capable of this incredible experience yeah yeah. And love seems to be like the most common one. Like it's overwhelmed with this feeling of love. Right. <clears throat> That's an interesting sort of default position for the brain to take in yeah, crisis. Yeah. Yeah. And you see that also in animals that are um, caught by predators. Well, they stop struggling oh, and right. there's a release of endorphins right. and they actually die in bliss. Right. There's a, I, I quote a passage in uh, Civilized to Death from, um, I think it's Livingston, the explorer. Right. Uh, who was, uh, a, a lion leapt on him oh, and right. had his, and shook him like a rag doll. And he survived it. I guess someone shot the lion or something. But he writes about it in his memoir. And he describes having this out-of-body experience, watching this happen, thinking, this is how I'll die. And feeling absolutely relaxed right. and, and just, you know, like a nitrous oxide experience at the dentist, <laughs> right. you know, like, right. hey, fill another one, whatever. <laughs> well, in that documentary, the DMT documentary, there, there was some uh, clinician who was interviewed, talked about people that are dying 
giving them DMT uh, helps them make the transition because in a way you, you do it in the dream you have your mm. little hallucination you make that right. that uh it's sort of what you call it sort of unego you lose your ego uh, dissolution of yeah, ego. yeah and that's yeah. kind of like what it's going to be like when you die so yeah. then it reduces the anxiety about what death is going to be like because right. it's it's going to be like this oh well that was fantastic it was you know it's great it was which blissful. which goes right back to what we we're saying about buddhism right because buddhism nirvana is the is the loss of ego right and yeah, that's right. you know yeah. basically right. what they're saying is that we hold on to our ego and that's the source of our pain that we're, right. we're trying to hold on to this particular life and right. this particular incarnation or whatever right. speaking of incarnations do you know about ian stevenson's work yep yep uh, yep i do I've similar a bit to about john mack a bit yep, yeah yeah I mean, what do you well for people who don't know ian stevenson was a psychiatrist at university of virginia i yep, think medical yep. school right. who studied um what he called what his book was 20 cases of suggestive reincarnation right people who seem to cases where it seemed that the details of the previous life that were reported by the young child were verified by you know he found the person who had died right and there were all these things like yeah you know the kid said i had an older sister and a younger brother and right. i you know a truck hit me on my bicycle and right. i lived in a village and you know with on my way to the brick factory and then they found this person who died on the bicycle <laughs> right. on the yeah. way to the brick factory yeah so i i think yeah i wrote about that in in the next book too um because, well, first, first of all, there's the pr problems with the reincarnation scenario is, you know, the, the, the geography. First, the geography problem. Why, why is it that the souls seem to be migrating to these poor countries and poor women having babies in India? Uh, you know, that, that kind of why aren't why isn't it happening in New York City? Or, well, wouldn't he say that's because the belief system in those countries accommodate this? Whereas in yes, New York, if yes. a kid says, oh, I was a. You know, a fireman in my last life, the parents <laughs> right. just say, sure, kid, you know, shut <laughs> right. up. Or yeah. they, oh, this kid won't shut up. They take him to a doctor and get him yes, on but the... the, but the, Yes, of course. But the belief, the culture and belief system sets up the, uh, the sort of propensity to look for connections that may or may not be there. True. Uh, so, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the child has a, you know, a birthmark on his cheek and then you find somebody who was shot. 50 years ago, 100 years ago in a war, and you shot the cheek. So, well, that must be right. the connection. Sure. And and also the problem I see is, you know, the object, the criteria for what counts as a hit. You know, like where does the birthmark have to be? How close does it have to be within 5 centimeters, 10 centimeters, 20 centimeters? And, you know, it, and it becomes more flexible as you're looking. And so of what constitutes a hit. So right. I think some of that's problematic. Yeah. And then, well... Where are these, you know, there's 100 billion people have lived. So where are all those souls? Because there's only 7 billion people alive now. Yeah. So where are they? And, and, and when the new people are born, don't they have a soul? And then if the new soul comes in, what happens to the soul that was in there? And so there's some logical problems yeah, I yeah. see there. Well, I think Stevenson's thing was that he, as I, and it's been a long time since I've read his work, but he seemed to be saying that he wasn't saying that reincarnation happens uh, all the time in a Buddhist sort of sense. He was saying that where he's seen evidence of it, it seemed to be only in traumatic deaths. Uh, right. People who died yes. peacefully right. didn't seem right. to be reincarnated as right. far as he could tell. It was always people yes, unfinished who died young and, and yes. violently, yeah. Yeah. whether an accident or murder or whatever. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but again, and and I, I I have no dog in this fight, so I don't care one way or the other. But 
Um, what do you think about the idea, like functional beliefs? You know what I mean? Like, you mean belief in belief? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, like what I said earlier about parents. I, I, I was listening to an interview recently with Barbara Kingsolver, the author of Poisonwood Bible. Oh, right, She's right, a great right, writer. Right. And there was, she said something that struck me. They were talking about you know, the environment and the ice caps and all the stuff that's happening. And she said, well, I have to be an optimist because I'm a mother. <laughs> I thought, well, it's funny how we accept that. And yet it makes no sense at all. You know, it's like saying, well, you know, I have to be a Christian. I'm Italian. You know, like, <laughs> right. well, really? Right, right. Do you? I mean, I have to right. be a racist. I'm, I'm in Alabama. Like, <laughs> right. Not necessarily. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but it did lead me to think, you know, I forget who it was who said, you know, I choose to be a Christian because if I'm wrong, it doesn't matter. And if I'm right, I get yeah, into heaven, yeah. you know. Pascal's kind of wager. Is that what it yeah, is? Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. Of course, um, it, it presumes you've picked the right religion or the right God. Yeah, yeah. So the Buddhists would say, yeah, but that, yeah, you, that, not, not the Christian gods. Well, yeah, but the Buddhists, you're going to get in anyway. Yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. so it doesn't Everybody's matter. Everybody's in. <laughs> Everybody's in. That's <laughs> right. why I like Buddhism. Yeah. They don't give a shit. Right. You want to call yourself a Buddhist? You're fine. You're a Buddhist. There's <laughs> yeah. no initiation. Right. No fees you have to pay. No special outfits. You don't have to give up any flesh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just do what you do. Who is it? Was it St. Augustine who said, love and do as you please? Uh, might have been Augustine. Yeah, yeah, that's that's sort of my religious stricture right there. Like, just don't be a dick, you know. Yeah, don't yeah. hurt anyone. Right, right. And then it doesn't really matter. Yes, and if the, and if that's all religion did, then you know I wouldn't even write about it. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's the again the fundamentalism of any kind. Yeah, I think is the problem of of any kind. And now, do you find? Well, even something like the you know feminist fundamentalism. Okay, there you go. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna take it away from where you start kicking people out of your club. Right, it's like the women's march. Right, but no pro no pro life women are allowed. Wait a minute, wait, this is not a women's march. No trans women. Yeah, right. What about okay? Now let's let's sort of have the snake eat its tail here. What about scientific fundamentalism? Isn't materialist Radical materialist science, isn't that a form of fundamentalism? Well, I, I suppose it could be. But the, the reason we do it, practice it, is because it, it's what works. It's what you can do to run experiments and test hypotheses. But isn't it the guy looking for his keys under the streetlight? Uh, well, it, it works for what it works <laughs> yes, for. that's right, yeah. So it's, it's possible that there are certain things, like we were talking about with anomalous experiences, that can't even in principle be explained by materialist science. If that's the case, then there's a realm of the world we'll never know through science, in, in right. which case maybe we do it through the, the shame shamans and the ayahuasca or whatever. Or, or we just do what you were suggesting, which is don't explain it at all. Yeah, just that's Re- right, resist yeah. the urge right. to explain everything. Right. And it doesn't, it's not just anomalous experiences, right? It's consciousness itself. No maybe. one's explained that. Maybe. That's right. Or ever so will. There's a branch of people, call, they call themselves the Mysterians, ah. who say that there are mysteries that we can't even in principle solve. And, you know, free will, determinism may be one of these, God may be one of these, consciousness may be one of these. I mean, didn't Sagan say that it's nonsensical to think that the brain would ever be powerful enough to explain the brain? I don't like, know if that was Sagan. Don't, don't you, that, yeah. Doesn't a system need to be. Outside of itself, greater than the thing it's explaining in some yeah, sense. Maybe, yeah. It's it, the explanation is likely to be a bottom-up, you know, neuronal 
you know, on top of neurons and networks and so on. But, you know, no one has the answer yet, and which, which kind of opens the door for people like Deepak to say, you're, you're on the wrong track entirely. It comes from over here, right. from on, to on top or from the, you know, the, the ground of being, it's everywhere. Then, okay, but how, how do we, at some point, we have to be able to test it or else what are we talking about? Where, where are you going to publish this? How, how will you know? Well, but see, that's, that's secondary to whether something's true or not. Like, how can you test it? Where are you going to publish it? What's its practical? Yeah. You know, and that's where, like with medicine, there's a, a, a short essay I read many years ago called The Myth of Mechanism. It's written by a doctor, and, and he was saying, look, you know, we're getting caught up in this. We're getting trapped by our need to understand the mechanism of uh, things because there are a lot of things we don't understand the mechanism, but we know they work. Like aspirin, the, the, the way aspirin blocked pain receptors or, or pain transmission wasn't understood until the 70s. Right. But people have been chewing willow right. root forever. <laughs> right. So if, if you went yeah. and said, stop chewing the willow root because we don't know how it works, right. Right. people would think you were crazy. But that's a lot of how modern medicine works now, where right. it's like, well, hypnosis. No one knows how it works. Well, then don't do it. Well, but it works right. for a lot right. of people, right. right? I mean, there's open heart surgery been done on people with nothing but hypnosis as right. an anesthetic. So uh, here, I guess it, it, it gets the difference between objectivity and, and mysticism. So if you have a mystical experience, it's true for you. And I, I can never know it. Uh, I mean, short of my taking, say, the ecstasy or ayahuasca right. or DMT. And then I say, yeah, I had, I also had a fantastic experience, but we'll never really know if we had the same sure. experience. So there's internal states that even introspection can't get to uh, between, between us. So the point of objective science is, well, okay, I'm going to run the experiment this way, and you can do it the same way in your lab, and I, we don't right. even know each other. And if we get the same results, then increases our confidence that there. So at some point, that's what science, materialist science is always pushing for that, only to to get around the problem of subjectivity. Sure. Um, that's not to deny that subjective states exist and they're real. In in our minds, they are. And the scientific, I mean, the way I see it, the scientific method is extremely powerful. It's it's fantastic, but it's limited. It's limited to explaining things that can be yes, of course, right. repeatable. This is why I think, in a way, you can't test God because if if God is truly outside of space and time, then how how are we ever going to know it? Because we're in space and time. If it's a multi-dimensional exactly, being, right. you know, non-dimensional right. being, what does that even mean? How would right. we know? And then, but if you go, no, no, God is part of the. He's omniscient, omnipotent, or so on. Okay, but what would be the difference between, say, a far future AI that's so powerful it'd be like an iPhone to a Neanderthal that seems godlike? Right. Or if we encounter aliens that are 500 million years more advanced than us, they would seem godlike. That they would seem omniscient and omnipotent. What would be the difference? Uh, it, but that would still be part of the material world, but they're just, so what, what would it even mean to, because people ask me, what would it take for you to believe in God? I'm not really sure other than the Woody Allen line, you know, a large deposit in a bank with bank account <laughs> will convince me $10 million will do it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, other than that, you know, if you say, well, it's, uh, you know, it's a personal experience. Okay, well, that's fine, but uh, I can't know your personal experience and vice versa. So yeah. is there some experiment we could run and go, yeah, that, that's God. Now, if, if, I, if some miracle happened, but see, I've seen Copperfield walk through walls in Penn and Teller. And right. You know, 
David Blaine puts his hand through a plate glass window and, you know, what? You know, I know they're magic tricks. I'm not sure I would be convinced if you know, something like a limb grew. Okay, that would, imp- I would be, there's a website, godhatesamputees.com or something. And it's a little, you know, it's a little poking the hornet's nest there, but it's a, it's a poignant point in, the, in that how, how come salamanders can grow limbs? Yeah. How come God cures cancers? But right. no one has ever grown a limb. You know, the, these Christian warriors come back from the Iraq War. Right. Christian families pray for them. They're still missing their limbs. That, so, so I would say growing a limb right there in front of me, you can see it. We're, we videotape it. There it is. Uh, that would, you know, but uh, hopefully it's not a magic trick or something, you know. Yeah. Well, so many of these debates, I feel like they they sort of take off without ever... Uh, being grounded in in clear definitions of terms. So when we're talking about God, like God is like, you know, God is love in the sense that neither one of them mean anything concrete, you know, like everything means something different to everybody. So, you know, when people say God, are you talking about some old man in the sky who's like paying attention to whether you masturbate or not? Like, okay, (laughs) that's sort of a straw God, you know, argument. If, If people are talking about, you know, some something beyond the material world well of course there's something beyond the material world we already know that i mean there's this you know there's energy which is non-material you know there, there's, or there's all, concepts like love yeah exactly justice. there's yeah, yeah there's consciousness which is immaterial problem at least on some sense yeah. what is the weight of a thought yeah yeah <laughs> so it, it all it all sort of falls apart i think you know when you really start taking it seriously uh, and I know, think that's why most scientists just work on specific problems that they can solve. Yeah. The big questions, you know, is there free will and, and determinism? Is there a God? I think these end up being kind of metaphysical speculations. Yeah. And the only people that really care are, say, the born-again evangelicals that want to, pre- you know, are the creationists. You know, right. we want to teach our doctrines in school. Well, they have to have a science base. Okay, we have a scientific proof. Okay, what is it? And then you end up in these inane arguments about proofs of God. Yeah. Uh, but if you if you define it carefully, then it, I can't see the experiment that's going to draw the like Huxley. It's just not not a knowable concept. Right. What experiment are we going to run to determine it? I can't think of any. Yeah. Yeah. There is none. Although getting back to the functional thing, there is evidence that people who believe in a hereafter are happier during their lives, have better health outcomes, and have less anxiety when Maybe. they reach the I, end I, of their life. I've looked life. at some of those. Some of it might be, the effects might be that if you belong to a religion, you're in a social community where right. people care about you. And that's very important. And you have people reminding you, don't eat the cake, make sure you take your meds, don't right. forget to go to the doctor because we care about you. So the, the, the we're praying for you is a proxy for you have a, a social circle that cares about you, right. and that may be the effect, right. because, of course, we're a social species. Right. You could just be hanging out with surfers and right. like be right. part of that community. <laughs> right. That, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's true. Being part of a community is really an important predictor yeah. of happiness. Dan Dennett calls this belief in belief, that, you know, it's, I don't believe, but I believe that people believe, and that, that has a real effect on their life. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Good, good uh, we've, okay. we've gone over an hour here. Okay. I, 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 I don't mean good. to take up your yeah. whole day. This yeah, is yeah. great. Um, we could, we could talk about this stuff forever. I really appreciate your, your open-minded, uh, atheism. That's, uh, that, that's, 
admirable. Well, my, my influence is Because I know there's were, pressure on you yes, to, to toe a party line. There is. But Sagan was a big influence on me, as was Steve Gould. Yeah. Both I knew. And uh, they were always, Sagan especially was cautious to say, you, you know, we're pretty young in our scientific journey. There's a lot we don't know. Yeah. So let's just, you know, keep it easy, you know, on the fundamentalists of all kinds and just keep an open mind and let's just wait and see. You ever get high with Sagan? No, <laughs> I didn't. I knew some people yeah. at Cornell who used to, I guess he had dinners at his place on Fridays right, or something, right. and they'd hang out and get yeah, high. Apparently he was an advocate for the legalization of marijuana yeah. before that was even a thing. Yeah. And, and uh, I think his, his, his widow is... Lynn, Lynn Margulis? No, the, uh, the previous. Uh, Andrine. Uh, She's an advocate of yeah. marijuana. Yeah. I don't know but if Lynn was or not. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I had a guy... Um, Connor Habib has been on the podcast a few times. He studied with Lynn, uh, but after, I guess after right, uh, Carl right. died, quite a bit after. Yep. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Well, thank you, man. You're welcome. Thank, thanks, thanks for, for having me. It's great. I'll, uh, I'll hook you up with some ayahuasca. Okay. Oh, boy. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through Patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast, a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through Amazon.com or you know someone who does. Please direct them through the link on my page, chrisryanphd.com. You click on that baby once, bookmark the landing page on Amazon, and then 8 to 10% of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones. Thank you to Basin and Range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast. Very funky little tune there uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun, I believe. You can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those T-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design T-shirts in Thailand. And you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at CarseyBlanton.com. C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm. And it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can because... Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known 
Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up, but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation? Running from a confrontation, wondering what we ought to say. Go down. We'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground. 